Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Ravi, welcome to the show. It's good to have you here. Uh, I'm delighted to be on the show, Michael. Thank you very much. So I'm very excited to speak to you because blockchain and crypto are two areas that I think I have a reading knowledge of, and I think our audience has a reading knowledge of, but we're not familiar. We don't understand what it is, the implications, how it works, and so on. So as a starting point, what is the blockchain? Uh, I think that's the best question to start with. As you pointed out, uh, crypto and blockchain share a common platform. In other words, most cryptocurrencies are built on a blockchain platform, such as Bitcoin, for example. Okay. So what we want to know is what exactly does blockchain do? And then if we want, we can talk about why crypto is built on blockchain. Yes, Uh, very good. The starting point is probably the idea of decentralization. That is, if you think of a bank, a bank keeps accounts for thousands, millions of customers. And when a customer does a transaction with a third party, such as uh, send some money from his or her bank account, the counterparty doesn't know if that person is who he says he is. In other words, there's an identity question. And then there's the question of, is this person's uh, credit or funding adequate? Do they have enough money in their account? So the bank takes on the role of a trusted intermediary. And the bank says, trust me, uh, I've been around in business for decades or centuries, and I can vouch for this person who they are and uh, what is their level of credit or funding so that they're good for this transaction. In return, the, the intermediary charges a fee. Uh, which can be, you know, depending on competition, uh, it can be several, you know, percentage points of the actual uh, transaction. Yes. So blockchain's idea is why not put all of the parties who want to do business with each other directly in connection with each other and completely leave out the intermediary? Okay, I like that. I'm going to ask some, which may sound like very simple questions. Sure. Who owns the blockchain? really depends on whether it's a private or public blockchain and whether it's unpermissioned or permissioned. So it's not one blockchain, they're different systems. Exactly. Uh, Bitcoin is one blockchain and it is completely unpermissioned and public. So if you have a digital wallet and if you have an ID and if you have a a private key and a public key, you can join uh, Bitcoin in, in, in a couple of minutes. And nobody will say, you know, uh, no to you. Whereas if you want to look at a blockchain that, say, the big banks in this country have for exchanging within a blockchain, securely exchanging uh, large sums of money that they might owe each other at the end of the day, that's a private permission blockchain, which only people can join by invitation, kind of like so, a club. So there are different blockchains. There are some private, there are some open source. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, open source is more the code. Even the private blockchain may draw on open source code uh, to write its own software. So there's nothing (laughs) that says open source code cannot be uh, put within a private blockchain. A private blockchain is more about access to the nodes uh, with form part of the blockchain. So the blockchain isn't like the internet where it's one system. There could be private blockchains and many different private blockchains and those blockchains can interact with each other. You know, that's one of the Achilles heel of blockchain. Uh, because right now, even in the cryptocurrency world, you have the Bitcoin uh, blockchain and you have the Ethereum blockchain and you have the Ripple XRP blockchain, just to take three examples. So that if Bitcoin and Ethereum need to talk to each other, uh, they need to have a bridge between the two blockchains so that data can leave one blockchain and be sent to the other and then be transacted inside the second blockchain. And the difficulty here is that blockchains are very secure by design. They're using high level cryptography, they're using validation algorithms to make sure transaction is, is accurate and valid. Uh, they do identity, identity verification, et cetera. But when you leave a blockchain, the bridge can be insecure. 
And in fact, mm. most recently, there was a fairly big hacker, think about half a billion dollars in the Binance uh, blockchain, if I recall correctly. And that was done because of the bridge. Uh, the bridge was, uh, the code was uh, not proper or there was some bugs in it. And some hacker took advantage of that. And there are many such instances of hacks. Most of them don't occur inside a blockchain. Uh, in fact, rarely. Uh, I would say that Bitcoin by itself has never been hacked since 2009 when it was first uh, uh, implemented. But once you have these uh, digital wallets and storage uh, exchanges, uh, yeah, Mount, uh, what's it called? Mount Go. Um, I remember. Yes, Mount I, I remember that story. Yes. Yeah, that was several years ago, but uh, people lost a huge amount of money because the the Bitcoin had left the Bitcoin blockchain and was stored in wallets on that uh, Mount Gox. That was the name. That's the name of the, yeah. the exchange. So, so the analogy here, just to make sure the readers mm -hmm. understand this, it's like the money is safe in a bank, but when I put it into an armored car and take it to another <laughs> bank, in the yeah. armored car there could be some flaws. There could be some, uh, the you know, the, Bink, the Brinks robbery can happen. Yes. Yes, the Brinks robbery. <laughs> Many of those, right? Okay, yeah. this is interesting. So, so blockchain is a code. It's like a ledger. Is that a good way to think about it? It's a distributed ledger. So ledger is a good analogy. Yeah. In fact, one other word for blockchain is DLT, distributed ledger technology. Because what happens is in a ledger, we have double entry so that I get debited and you get yes. credited and the two sides of the, uh, you know, uh, of the double entry balance. And that is maintained by someone. Um, but in a distributed ledger, the copy of that ledger is available at every node. And all of them are updated simultaneously. And they're also encrypted. And there's a hash that is the product of the encryption, which is matched across all nodes. So that all nodes after a transaction must have the same hash. And that's so, easy to verify. Going back to something you said right at the beginning, you said the difference with blockchain is it verifies the parties' identities. And it verifies that they have the money they claim they have, which may seem like a naive follow-up. but why is there so much fraud then? Why is it that you read all these stories about the dark web using blockchain and crypto if it's easy to track on? Well, that's, you know, there's something called pseudo anonymity. So that in a blockchain, all you need is a, a, a digital wallet, an address yeah. really, and you need a public key and a private key. Now you can transfer the money from one wallet to another uh, across countries because the blockchain, Bitcoin blockchain is a global chain. So that the hope is that by transferring it across several digital wallets and several jurisdictions, some of which are less regulated than the US, it may be possible to hide your identity. But it is possible with forensics. There are some very good forensic uh, uh, link companies out there that can actually trace transactions and, and figure out using probability and statistics who the actual party is behind a transaction. So you're not anonymous. It's only pseudo anonymity. And the other is, thing I will say is mixing. Sure. Yeah, what I do is let's say I want to send $10 million in a money laundering endeavor. Instead of sending the $10 million all at once, I break it up into, let's say, uh, 100,000 uh, smaller quantities. Yes. And I send each of these separately. And I do it by using software that mixes my $100 with someone else's $100 and then sends it as a $200 transaction. And at the other end, the mixing software uh, uh, sort of decomposes the, the transaction and takes out my $100 and accumulates it with all of the other $100 I've sent on other uh, transactions. So this idea of mixing is a way of muddying the waters, which is another way that, if you will, nefarious actors will use to try to conceal their tracks. Uh, but again, uh, there are all kinds of uh, somewhat sophisticated and somewhat pricey algorithms that can be used to detect and trace uh, uh, such attempts. And so, so you know, somebody like, like the IRS would only use this for, for what they consider to be fairly large transactions. The small transactions could get away with it. So let's look at the big picture, right? That's more important yeah. than individual hacks and so on. Mm -hmm. In the big picture, in the grand scheme of things, with regards to the trillions of dollars flowing across banks using SWIFT and so on, is blockchain more secure and safe than a typical bank transaction on aggregate? Well, blockchain is safe, but it is slow. Slow. And cannot handle large volumes as yet. 
whereas, as you mentioned, SWIFT can handle trillions of dollars of uh, yes. cross-border payments. So the problem is that SWIFT uses a fairly antiquated uh, uh, messaging system. They are trying to update it and they're in the process of updating it, but it is a batch processing messaging system and the yes. banks have to be open, whereas Bitcoin is a 24-hour uh, yeah, that's market. True. And then the cost. Uh, Cross-border remittances are very costly. Uh, they can charge three, four percent of the transaction. Mm -hmm. They are not uh, transparent, so you don't know when the transaction is completed, at what exchange rate, uh, and uh, when is the transaction finalized. So there is, so there are some reasons why people are looking for alternatives to using the existing legacy uh, SWIFT-based uh, cross-border uh, uh, remittance system. Yeah, I remember once we um, worked with a company in Kosovo mm -hmm. and there's no way to send them money directly because they were sanctioned by the U.S. government right. not the company but the entire country and they were a perfectly normal company mm -hmm. it was a very difficult way to pay them where to pay their branch in Albania which was not sanctioned and the Albanians would transfer money so mm -hmm. I can see the benefits here but I want to come back to some more basic questions to get the listeners to understand this you mentioned there are different private blockchains you mentioned crypto mm -hmm. or Bitcoin for example yeah. And there are others like Ethereum and so on. Mm -hmm. So they all have their own enclosed blockchains. Is one of those blockchains more superior than the other or they all operate in the same way? In other words, is one more secure or does it have advantages the others don't have in the technical architecture? Well, it depends on what your metric is. You know, most companies would say speed is important. Okay. Scalability is important. Uh, privacy protection is important. Uh, perhaps decentralization is a goal. Uh, so most blockchains will have different performances on each of these dimensions. How okay. fast they can function, how many transactions they can handle, that's a scalability question. Whether it's highly decentralized or somewhat centralized, you know, that's what a permission blockchain would look like. Uh, also the consensus algorithm, which is how are transactions validated. Uh, and there are many consensus algorithms out there. You've heard of proof of work, uh, which yeah. is what Bitcoin uses, which is very energy intensive. So that has fallen into some disfavor. Yes. And you may recall that recently Ethereum moved to proof of stick, which is yes. a much more energy efficient uh, algorithm, but it has slightly different uh, uh, approach. And so some people might say, I don't like proof of stake because it gives more voice to somebody who has a larger stake. Uh, in other words, validation is done by distributed nodes and in proof of stake, somebody with a large stake in that blockchain uh, who has put up the money as a stake to say, I would like to be one of the validators has a larger voice. And so proof of stake has some uh, questions particularly among computer scientists, about uh, whether that can be taken over by nefarious actors if they accumulate enough uh, stake to dominate the validation mechanism. So what I'm getting at is each blockchain has been designed to optimize some uh, of yes. the uh, metrics. Uh, it's impossible right now using the current uh, blockchain technology to optimize all of them at the same time. Uh, this is sometimes referred to as uh, Buterin's uh, trilemma. Buterin yes. is the founder of Ethereum, and he posited this trilemma a while back, that it is impossible to maximize scale and speed and uh, uh, privacy. For the listeners, a good analogy would be to say that you have five different laptops from five mm -hmm. different manufacturers. They all do what laptops do, but some focus on the battery life. Mm -hmm. Others focus on the speed, the processing speed. Mm -hmm. Others focus on the resolution. Others focus on the graphics. They're all doing the same thing, but they optimize different things. Is that a good way to think about it? It is, as long as you understand that certain blockchains are optimized for certain use cases. So this would be like saying, I'm going to buy a laptop, which is great for gaming. And yes. there are some very specialized gaming laptops. And then somebody else would say, I'm an architect and I do a lot of blueprints and designs. And so I would like a, a, a laptop that is very good at refreshing the screen at high resolution constantly. So depending on the use case, certain blockchains, because these are protocols, the operating systems. Yeah. So the protocols are sometimes written by the group that designed that blockchain specifically to achieve or optimize for certain use cases. Blockchain is still in its infancy, so there's still room for specialized, vertically integrated, vertical industry-oriented blockchains. You might say. So, if I held cryptocurrency, 
I would have to host them on a blockchain? Is that the way to move no. it around? No, you'd need a digital wallet. First. There are many out there, MetaMask, for example. You need a digital wallet and that would have an address. And then you could go into a blockchain like Bitcoin and give your address in your digital wallet and, and authorize a transaction, which is say a withdrawal from your wallet of a certain amount of Bitcoin. And then you would give your public key as well as your private key. The private key is the password that says, I'm authorizing this transaction. The public key is sent to the person, the counterparty, who would use the public key to verify that it is you who's authorizing that transaction and then use his private key to decipher the transaction so that he can now get access to that uh, amount that you're willing to transfer and put it into his digital wallet. So that's how it would work. So when I'm listening to the whole concept of blockchain and crypto and so on, all the newspaper stories and so on, mm -hmm. it sounds a lot like the early days of the internet where what's going to come out of this is going to be promising, but it's hard to predict what it's going to be. My question is, why haven't the large banks done enough in this space and governments? Why haven't they moved into their own digital currencies? Well, there are stable coins. Stable coins are a halfway house. Mm -hmm. You've got crypto, Bitcoin. Bitcoin is incredibly volatile. It went from 70,000 to 20,000. But on the other hand, it started at zero and went all the way up to 70,000. So yes. you can look at it half full or half empty. But nevertheless, Bitcoin is highly volatile. So it's not very useful to say Bitcoin is money because money is meant to be a store of value as well as a unit of account and a means of exchange. And Bitcoin has some trouble meeting those guidelines. So stable coins came around, which was the idea that we would create a digital currency that was locked in a sense to parity of one-to-one -to, -one to the dollar or one-to-one -to, -one to the euro or one-to-one -to, -one to you know the Swiss franc, yes. whatever. And the idea of a stable coin is that you would have to maintain hopefully reserves adequate enough to support the coin so that if there was a run on the coin and somebody started selling large quantities of it or trying to buy large quantities of it and change the parity so it would go away from one to one arbitrage would be able to jump in and keep the parity however there have been examples in the last two or three years That's of right. people losing faith terra luna for example is a yes. great pair of stable coins that collapsed from a dollar to i think eight cents so the governments have been worried for some time that aside from the illicit transactions, you know, human trafficking and arms trafficking and drug trafficking and yes. so on, for which these cryptocurrencies could be used outside of the jurisdiction of governments, uh, that there is the danger to the financial system that enough yeah. people got scared at once, like happened in 2008 with the Lehman Brothers uh, financial collapse. If enough people got scared at once, it could cause a sudden run and everybody might try to exchange Bitcoin for dollars or, or Ethereum for dollars. And this could destabilize the, the financial system because fairly large amounts of money are in circulation. Bitcoin today, I would say is around half a trillion dollars in market cap the amount of Bitcoin times the price, about half a trillion, give or take. <laughs> but that's still a fair amount of money. And the, what the government is worried about is if it keeps growing, it could really become a parallel monetary system that could affect money supply, interest rates, and confidence in the financial system. So governments are saying maybe we should get into the act and launch official what are called central bank digital currencies. This would be an official digital dollar issued by the Fed, supported by the US Treasury, just like currently they issue banknotes. And uh, China has already launched one currency of its own called the ECNY, the uh, uh, Electronic Chinese uh, Yuan. And this was available to about uh, uh, maybe 250 or so Chinese, uh, million, 250 million Chinese for downloads at the time of the Olympics and is uh, being used on pilot uh, in pilot form in about 80 cities in China. So China is really serious about issuing a Chinese digital dollar controlled, by the way, by the Chinese government. Okay? Yes. So that's very important. So I just want to delineate an important point here. Yeah. The government is worried about a run on a cryptocurrency. But at the same time, you can have a run on a normal currency like the Swiss franc or the pound and so on. So the idea by government launching a cryptocurrency is that even though there could be a run on the cryptocurrency, it has the backing of the Reserve Bank. Is that the thinking? No. The idea is you know, that if the government launches a cryptocurrency, the digital dollar, in general, people will have more faith 
<laughs> in the US digital dollar issued by the US government than a private cryptocurrency issued by the Bitcoin network, which by the way, is not centralized. It's a highly decentralized network, it's global. And so there are really no, no rules, whereas the US digital dollar will require a rule such as know your customer, KYC. They will yeah. have anti-money laundering in place, AML. Uh, they'll have you know anti-human trafficking, et cetera. So there'll be a certain set of regulations Coupled with the fact that the U.S. government is relatively stable and has been for, you know, a couple of hundred years, people will, the assumption is that people will prefer to own and transact digital dollars as long as they're not trying to, you know, indulge in transactions which may be on the, on the murky side. So that's the idea behind a digital dollar. That sure. It will have a better approach to controlling money supply as opposed to letting private entities issue currencies which gradually take on growing importance in the financial system and become a basis for a parallel money uh, economy. So we use the U.S. as an example, which is a great example, but the U.S. is an anomaly given its size and stability. Mm -hmm. If another country like, let's say, Portugal introduced its own cryptocurrency, mm -hmm. what happens if there's a run on that cryptocurrency? How are consumers protected? Well, there are, it's likely to be that there'll only be three or four major sure. uh, digital currencies in, in circulation. One would be probably the US dollar, if we allowed it. By the way, there's a lot yes. of political opposition to it, but if we allowed it. Secondly, the euro, because Portugal is part of the euro, and so most likely the euro is 500 million people. The euro is seen as relatively strong. You would probably have support for a digital euro. China has both political as well as economic reasons for issuing a Chinese uh, digital yuan, so that is definitely going to go on. And who knows, maybe Switzerland or Singapore might consider issuing some of their own currencies, primarily for domestic use with some cross-border uh, transacting ability. So what will happen, I think, is the possibility that instead of the current, you know, couple of hundred currencies or 150 currencies that we have in the world, you might be reduced to a half a dozen or a dozen major currencies. And here's the rub then. The small countries would have no option but to use one of these digital currencies issued by a government yes. that is not, not them. So that a small country like, say, Trinidad or Venezuela even might be forced to say, well, I'm going to use the digital ruble uh, rather than the digital dollar. But ultimately, I might be using a digital currency issued by a much larger government that is not under my control. That is a possibility. So let me just unpack this with the mm. listeners because it's quite interesting. And I thank you for sharing this. Um, mm. I speak to executives from large emerging markets companies on a pretty much daily basis. Turkey, right. Philippines, mm -hmm. China, India, you name it, right? Yeah. A lot of them complain about the fact that their debt is held in dollars. Interest rates are going up in the United States and it's going to be a problem mm -hmm. for them to pay it back. Right. But what happens in a world whereby not just their <clears throat> debt is held in dollars, they are using a currency from the United States or the European Union. What are the implications for them? First of all, they made the decision to borrow in dollars. So true, yes. it's too that's late true. to complain that they, you know, that's a, it's an economic decision. You're borrowing in dollars because interest rates in dollars are low compared to your currency. And then you're hoping that the dollar stays stable. But if your currency depreciates, then, and if your earnings are domestic, obviously you have to earn more domestic profits to be able to pay uh, the, the US dollar that's gone up in value against your currency. But that's, you know, really international financial yes. management. More interesting is, you know, will the digital currency change the way people, uh, their portfolios of foreign currencies. Because right now, most large multinationals will hold a portfolio of foreign currencies with maybe 60% US dollars, 70% US dollars, and the rest spread out among the Euro, the Japanese yen, maybe the Chinese yuan, etc. So when you move to a digital currency, they may be able to more closely match their inflows and outflows with the portfolio of uh, currencies they hold, and thus also their borrowing. See, what I'm saying is if this Turkish company did 30% of its business with China and expects that to grow from 30 to 40% over the next five years, they could gradually ramp up the use of the digital yuan yeah. and borrow more digital yuan and pay off the digital dollar. So I can see that happening. And by the way, this would be much more efficient because uh, cross-border remittances would become almost instantaneous uh, with almost zero cost. And so that would be a huge plus. It would essentially reduce your working capital needs by, you know, by a couple of percent.
percent, and that would mean a big saving in in your interest rates. In, I mean, in your interest costs, and therefore an increase in your profit margins. Uh, multinationals would actually benefit from having a digital currency regime uh, with uh, acceptable uh, digital currencies across borders. There could be a situation whereby, in a country like, let's say, the Philippines, mm-hmm. the central bank of the Philippines chooses to use the U.S. digital currency, but individual companies within the Philippines choose other currencies. Is that an option? If the U.S., if the Philippine government, and I don't think this will happen, but if the Philippine government decided to say from now on we'll use digital dollars, uh, then it'll be used inside the country for transactions. So all companies operating in the Philippines would have to accept traditional dollars. And so it would be then odd for them to say, well, I'll use it internally in the Philippines, but externally I'll use digital uh, Chinese currency. Uh, what I'm saying is it really depends on the composition of foreign revenues and foreign yes. costs. If that Philippine company did most of its export business with China, I can see that, that 30% of their total holdings would be digital yuan and the rest digital dollars for use inside the Philippines and elsewhere. But by the way, you know, one of the difficult questions when, when we start moving to this regime is how do you create a system for exchange of digital currencies between countries? Yes. Because right now what we have is uh, the equivalent of the Federal Reserve creating accounts for a few systemically important banks. So you have to be fairly large and have high volume transactions to hold an account with the Federal Reserve. And this is, you know, uh, for, for clearing. Let's say my clients in total are sending out $100 million today and are receiving $90 million. So at the end of the day, you know, there's going to be a $10 million gap, which I have to settle with the U.S. Federal Reserve so that they in turn can pass on the money to the countries that are receiving that extra $10 million. So the acceptability of, for, of the dollar today is based on the fact that many of these large banks have accounts with the Fed. And similarly, yes. you know, German companies will have accounts with the Bundesbank and so forth. And the, and the central banks are functioning as a clearinghouse, netting at the end of the day, the net you know, balance, whether it's positive or negative between any two currencies. That's happening on a daily basis. Let's come back to a case study, which you obviously would know about. Yeah, I think it was Nicaragua, Honduras who launched their own digital currency. Uh So you mentioned that it's likely there'll be one or two large digital currencies that corner the market, like the dollar, the euro, the yuan, maybe maybe the pound or the Singaporean or the yen or something Mm -hmm. like that. What's the strategic thinking behind someone like Nicaragua, Honduras doing this? I think they were enticed by the huge growth in the value of Bitcoin. Yes. It went from 20 to 70,000. And so they figured this was going to give them the ability to get, uh, you know, ride the, up, uh, the uptrend in the digital value of the Bitcoin and thus uh, get a continual dividend. That was an illusion that the Bitcoin would keep rising, but there was an idea that if I issue Bitcoin, uh, I'm going to be able to uh, keep getting, you know, a a nice dividend every month or every year, which I can use for other purposes. I think what happened is the opposite, that many of these countries that started saying we're going to use the Bitcoin for for tax receipts and for paying salaries, you know, they saw they've seen that value go from 70 to 20,000. Now you might say it's it's temporary, it'll go back up to 70. Um, it might because cryptocurrencies are incredibly volatile. Yeah. It could certainly do that. But in the meantime, you've got this huge risk of all of these uh, uh, you know, civil servants perhaps and exporters and importers being forced to trade a very volatile currency. So if my main business is exporting coffee and I'm getting paid in Bitcoin, then I immediately, within seconds, have to go and exchange that Bitcoin on a cryptocurrency exchange for currency that I can use to pay my workers and to buy fertilizer and to pay my gas bills and so forth, unless everybody starts using those uh, digital you know, currencies. But there's always going to be like musical chairs. 
somebody's always going to say, I don't want this digital currency. It's too unstable. I want something more reliable. So it's going to be like musical chairs, people constantly trying to pass it on to someone else. Uh, so yeah. unless you have a stable digital currency, you're always going to have this problem of people trying to do two things, run their business and hedge uh, the volatility of a relatively you know, unstable uh, government uh, digital currency. I remember there was a paper published by a professor at some university. I can't remember his name, her name actually. But they showed that when companies put the word crypto mm. into their name, people bought into these companies and drove up their share price, even if they didn't understand the underlying mm -hmm, mm -hmm. economics of this business. And I feel that a little bit of that was happening with Honduras or Nicaragua launching a cryptocurrency. I think it was, for a while, there was a very, you know, kind of one-way bet. Yes. Everybody got into it thinking, it's going up so fast. All I need to do is ride it for 10% and then I'll get out. Uh, and that was fine as long as you got out before it started collapsing. Yes. But you have to think that there were quite a few people who were holding. In fact, everybody who owned Bitcoin when it was $70,000, right, had the ride downwards. Maybe some of them got out at 65 or 60 or 55. But yeah. Everyone who held Bitcoin, the 19 million or so in circulation at that high point has suffered losses, either realized losses by selling it or on paper, where they're holding it, hoping it'll come back. Uh, and so I think a lot of those speculators who were uninformed and simply taken up in the hype have probably been washed out of the market either because yeah. of margin calls or because they realized losses and said, this is not for me anymore. And by the way, the market today is so low, and I'm talking about the stock market, it is relatively low and you've got incredible bargains out there, blue chip stocks at low prices yielding four, five, six, seven percent yeah. dividend. Verizon, for example, Verizon is yielding around seven and is a pretty stable company, one of the top three you know, cell phone companies in the US. So why would you speculate <laughs> on yeah, Bitcoin when you have all these very safe, relatively safe investments? So the climate is different today compared to say a year ago. It may take a while for, you know, for a purely speculative uh, froth to once again uh, uh, you know, invade the market. And I do know of some very smart people who put a lot of money into crypto and saw you know, something like 80, 70% of their portfolio wiped out during the decline of um, crypto mm -hmm. prices and so on. But let's switch gears a little bit here, right? Sure. If thinking strategically, I can see why understanding blockchain and cryptocurrencies is gonna become more and more important. But I wanna focus on an executive, mm -hmm. one part, and then a government, the second part. Sure. So executives around the world, they've got conflicting issues to deal with. On the one hand, they've got climate change. Mm. They've got the uncoupling, the supposed uncoupling with China. Mm. They've got to worry about things like diversity and so on. Mm -hmm. Going digital. So my question here is for, for listeners, why should executives build a competency or capability in blockchain and crypto? And how should they start doing this? I'll start with the why first. Yes, that's a good place. Blockchain has enormous capabilities which address some of the faults of the current e-commerce system. Right now, when you do e-commerce, you have to pay separately. You have to have a credit card on file, or you have to have Venmo, or you have yeah. to have Apple Pay. You have to have some way of paying which is not you know, simultaneous and managed by the company doing the selling to you. So okay. you have these sort of parallel transactions uh, taking place. If you think about that alone, you know, you're paying out money. Visa charges two and a half, three percent. Amex charges four percent. Venmo, you know, takes a cut. The banks take a small portion of any kind of transfer. Cross-border remittances, as I said, are high. So one of the first things you want to ask is, if the world is moving to an efficient, much lower-cost payment system, should I be prepared for that? Because with that payment system comes data. You control the nexus, the relationship with your customers. You're no longer ceding it to a Venmo or, or Visa or uh, you know uh, Apple Pay. You are directly dealing with that customer and getting paid directly from that customer with nobody else in between. Yeah. 
Yes. So you're saving two or three percent, which you can pass on to the customer or keep for yourself. Uh, you're getting a lot of data from that customer that nobody else will have. And uh, it also reduces your working capital needs because you don't have to manage any kind of float or receivables uh, or uh, any of that. Of course, you'll also not be able to enjoy payables because the same will apply to your suppliers. They'll be getting instant payment from you. So that's number one, that I think the way the payment system will evolve, more and more companies will feel the need to control that payment channel. If not, they will be left behind. Because that's what disruption is. Disruption is somebody that you don't expect to be competitive with you, who starts off with an inferior solution that is lacking many bells and whistles that you offer. So the disruptive solution is weak and uh, underpowered. But some people use it because they either don't want the latest uh, solution that is expensive with all the capabilities, they just want something very simple, or they're not consumers at all. And so they're being enticed by this new solution, which they see as being perhaps more suitable to their needs. So what, the danger of any disruptive uh, solution is if it succeeds, it's gradually going to improve and, and ramp up and take over more and more of the segments of the market, invading your segment. And so I think that's going to happen with blockchain-based payments and blockchain-based applications. They are roughly very, you know, immature. They have burrs. They have rough edges. Yes. That's all going to be sanded away, and they're going to get better and cheaper and more efficient. And more companies are going to adopt them. And if you are not prepared, in the sense of at least having done some pilots and understood what blockchain is capable of, and if you have not accumulated uh, a certain level of competence, you know, human resource competence and technological savvy, by the time you try to catch up, those uh, early movers will have moved on two or three generations beyond you. So I think that's the, the big risk, that we don't know when blockchain will become ready for prime time, you know, when it'll take off, but I'm confident that it's only a matter of time. And so you as a large company, uh, you can afford to take some of your time and some of your resources, both financial and people, and say, let me try this out on a pilot scale, see what it's all about, see where there are some, some real speed bumps which bother me and I'm not ready to use it in, a, in any great way. But at the same time, let me see what its potential is. Because then I think I have learned a lot. Yes, that makes sense. So I'm going to put together an analogy for the mm -hmm. listeners and tell me if this analogy makes sense. Yeah. Sure. So if I'm a merchant and I sell products on Amazon, I don't know anything about my customers because Amazon doesn't give me that information. Right. I don't know who bought it. I don't know how much they can spend. I literally don't know anything about them. All I know is Amazon sends me a note saying that someone bought something, ship it to this address. So I don't have any of the data. I don't have any connection with them. I can't contact them. I can't understand their purchasing capacity. I miss all that data. Is that a similar analogy for building a blockchain, the access to customers? I think that if you are able to manage the payment relationship with customers, by using a digital currency yes. so that they pay you in digital currency and you're willing to accept digital currency. And remember, one of the nice things about blockchain is what's called payment versus delivery. That is the transaction simultaneously executes the exchange of, of asset or service with the exchange of payment, with the exchange of value. It, it occurs simultaneously because it's a ledger. So the ledger is simultaneously uh, corrected or, or this changed for both parties at the same time that the transaction is complete, which is why it makes sense for a company to say, I better understand what payment modalities my customer wants. You know, will they want mostly to work with a US digital dollar? Yes. Will they like to work with ETH? And I'm, I should be able to manage all those digital wallets for my customers, the same way that today I'm willing to accept payments in Visa or Apple Pay or cash, okay? It's not that difficult to do it if you have set up the technology infrastructure and you have the understanding, plus of course the, the security, because you need to have a node that within a blockchain that you might subscribe to or create yourself, uh, you know, you need a certain level of technological savvy. 
to be able yeah. to manage that node securely. But that's not hard to obtain. It's like any technology. If you're willing to take the time and invest in people and and the and the equipment and infrastructure, you'll be able to figure it out. Uh, I'm going to ask a follow-up question here. Yeah. And again, it's just to make sure everyone understands the differences mm. and benefits, okay? Mm -hmm. So if I belabor a point, it's purely because you're explaining things in a very good way. And I think the listeners will benefit to understanding more about it. Sure. So uh, let's assume a company works with Stripe as their payment processor. Mm -hmm. So they use Stripe to get customers to load up their credit card details, pay for transactions, and Stripe tells the company, hey, this person paid for it. Mm -hmm. Can you supply the goods? Now, in this situation, Stripe provides all customer details to the merchant, mm -hmm. including credit card details. Mm -hmm. That's what I think happens anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Credit card details, when the transaction took place, what country, mm -hmm. contact details, name, address, and so on. So what is the benefit then of blockchain? Well, first of all, I think Stripe accepts digital currencies. Yes. So I think if you work with Stripe, Stripe offers the option to pay in Bitcoin or Ethereum or anything else. They accept it on behalf of the client. Now, what I don't know is, is whether Stripe then passes on the Bitcoin or exchanges it into cash and then gives the merchant cash. Well, you know, that's a detail. But sure. what is interesting is I don't think Stripe does it for free. Stripe yes, charges true. a fee it's a, it's of a some It's a 2 sort. or 3% fee. So then... If you have a relatively new technology, which once you master, allows you to avoid that 2 or 3%, should you not do that? Would that not be in your long-term interest to do it? What do you lose by not using Stripe? Are they getting customers for you that you didn't have before? Uh, you know, are they doing analytics that you couldn't do yourself? There must be some reason that you might say, I prefer to stick with them than try to develop my own digital currency-based payment modality. When you explain it that way, it has significant implications about cutting out the financial middleman. Yes. Now, if you're cutting out the financial middleman, there are a lot of powerful companies in the world with powerful lobby groups will not want this to happen. Mm -hmm. So this is going to be a pretty big fight. <laughs> Visa and MasterCard, for example, okay, yeah. are developing strategies for precisely this purpose. They want to know how they can become providers of digital currency payments. Clearly, they are thinking far ahead and saying, we can probably no longer continue to charge the two and a half or three percent on our currency, but we would still like to be the outsourcer for many small companies and maybe even medium-sized companies who don't want to have that extra technological you know, uh, uh, capability. So they are looking ahead and trying to figure out how they can work with digital currencies, accepting that this may reduce their overall uh, fee uh, volume. And what they hope to make up for then is in providing additional value-added services. I mentioned analytics. I think that's going to be huge. Blockchain is going to offer much more granular customer-level data in a very timely fashion. And that could become very useful when linked with AI to provide all kinds of you know, actionable insights. And many of these intermediaries might start thinking about, okay, we can't access our old uh, you know, payment uh, structure, old fee structure, I should say, two and a half, three percent 3% on just managing payments, but maybe we can make up for that by offering some new value-added services surrounded, surrounding the use of AI and maybe various kinds of other technologies such as IoT, Internet of Things, mm -hmm. to complement uh, just the, the payment. And that might become an interesting value proposition for companies who might then say, perhaps that's worth it. Uh, it's impossible to know because we're at such early days. But I have to think incumbents like Visa need to fight back. They need to come up with a viable strategy so that they don't end up completely like a blockbuster. Okay? Yes. I'm not saying, by the way, that Visa is going to end up that way at all. But we blockbuster don't know. was a very extreme case. But there is the threat to their franchise from these digital currencies. And any uh, strategic thinking incumbent is going to start coming up with scenarios and say, under this scenario, what are the what are my options to preserve as much of my current profitability as possible? So going back to the Stripe example, and I apologize if I use Stripe, maybe any mm -hmm. other payment processor. Mm -hmm. When Stripe processes a, a transaction, they charge a 2 or 3% fee, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. 
does Visa make any money on that transaction? Are you aware of that? Oh yeah, out of the, let's say 3%, yeah. out of the 3%, roughly 1% goes to the merchant who issues the credit card to the customer. 1% goes to the merchant who processes that credit card transaction from the customer. And the remaining 1% Visa in a sense keeps and maybe half a percent or so goes to manage the global network. Because remember Visa processes yes. 50,000, 60,000 transactions per second with very high reliability, high security, et cetera, et cetera. So that's costly to run that global network. Yes. So they use about half a percent, uh, you know, this is off the top of my head, uh, to pay for the costs of running that network. And then what remains is their real uh, fee. But even if it's only a quarter of a percent, somewhere between a quarter and a half of a percent, when you're talking about the size of credit card volume yeah. across the world that Visa is responsible for, even that one quarter to one half percent results in a very, very healthy uh, total uh, operating profits and a very healthy uh, return on capital, which is their business model. I mean, it's like a tax, basically, which yeah, a very low tax, but pay. yeah. It's like a tax on breathing. Yeah, say. well, it's a tax to fund the infrastructure for the security, but that's an address. So switching gears here, right? We've talked about large companies and governments and so on. Mm -hmm. I read somewhere that the majority of employment, revenue, and profit in the United States comes from medium to small companies. Mm -hmm. So now we spoke about large companies, a company that has, a, let's say, $10 million, $1 million revenue. Mm -hmm. Are they going to be left out of this and the advantage goes to large companies? who can build the blockchain and take advantage of it? How does it play out for smaller companies? Well, you know, there are a number of companies emerging that are offering, offering blockchain as a service. Blockchain okay. as a service says, we can create a node for you. We can manage the security, the technology, the equipment, the, the right connections to the other nodes in the blockchain. And you pay us a small fee in return for us keeping it up uh, permanently, you know, as long as you want it. So it's like having a cell phone service. You know, somebody runs the cell phone network and gives you a yes. cell phone and you pay them a fee. And in return, you have access to the cell phone for as much time as you want. Similarly, a small company could say, I want to be able to be part of a blockchain node just to manage customer payments and cut out the 2% two, two whatever fee I'm, I'm paying right now. I don't have the savvy or the desire to invest in all of the resources needed to run my own blockchain node. So if there's a company that can offer a blockchain node as a service, I'll sign up with that. And just like I buy a cell phone, I'll essentially pay for a node uh, in the blockchain. And then all of the managing, et cetera, is done by the blockchain as a service company. And I just sit back and pay my fee and, and get access to the benefits of being a node on that blockchain. Hopefully the fee would be smaller than what is being paid to credit card companies. It would have to be for yes. it to be attractive to small companies. They would need to see a benefit, a positive return. Otherwise they would say, why switch? Because yes. there's a very strong inertial factor. <laughs> I think when you talk about why blockchain is not taking off, I think one reason is that legacy systems are working reasonably well. So for a lot of companies, yes, it is a bit of an expense, but it's working. And as you point out, there are many other uh, pain points on my agenda, climate change and diversity yeah. and breaking apart of the global supply chain that uh, I'm not going to worry about this one element. I'll put this on the back burner and get to it when I can. For now, I'll let somebody else manage it. But I think you've articulated something that I don't think is very clear to businesses when they look at blockchain, at least the ones I've spoken to. Mm -hmm. Most of them, when they look at blockchain and crypto, the security side is emphasized in the marketing, and I think it's done deliberately. Mm -hmm. But when you articulate it as it's a chance to bypass the credit card fees and have direct access to consumer information and data, it makes it easier to understand the business case for doing this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because security is inherent to the blockchain because of encryption. Yes. But there are also other benefits, such as you know the idea of controlling digital assets. For example, if you were a let's say a musician, you know you put music on Spotify, uh, that's intermediary, and you get yes. very very small returns for people streaming your music, very small. And unless you are a major hit, you're not going to make a living from that. But in a blockchain, I can put my music as a file on the blockchain. And people who are interested in music can join that blockchain and find my music and decide that they want to listen to it one time 
or listen to it uh, 10 times or be able to listen to it whenever they want for a year. Yes. And each of these could have a micropayment attached to it, different levels, of course. And the fee would go directly to the musician. And the musician learns about the fans. You know, who's buying my music to listen to once? Yeah. Who came back and said, I wanted a month, I would like to listen to it for a month? Who decided they would like to have, you know, sampling rights so that they could take 10 or 15 seconds of that music, uh, you know, uh, MP3 or whatever it is format and put it into their ad or into their production? You know, you would have that kind of knowledge about your fans, which I think would be very valuable to almost any musician. And as I said, it allows them to make a living compared to what Spotify might offer currently. There's actually a blockchain of that nature being developed, I believe, at Berkeley School of Music here in Boston. And it's a school for musicians, young aspiring musicians. Yeah. And so I think they're experimenting with it. And it's a fascinating idea because you can apply it to just about any kind of intellectual property. You can apply it to, uh, you know, that's what NFTs are, by the way. You know, Non-fungible yeah. tokens are simply art that people create that can be sold. Uh, and, you know, there's a very, see, the problem with any digital file is you can copy it any number of times and pass it on. So what does ownership mean of a digital file? And an NFT or something like a blockchain-based rights to listen to a music file is saying we're going to create a way to, uh, to control ownership and sharing of a digital file which you couldn't do under the traditional e-commerce uh, internet uh, web system that we have right now, which is why everyone talks about Web3, that the blockchain is going to be the basis for Web3, this new web that you know might come around uh, sometime. It's interesting how history repeats itself because you know, 20, 30 years ago, if you wanted to make it big in the music industry, you had to find a studio who would back you and they'd take a large percentage of whatever you made and then YouTube came along whereby you could put a song up into the internet, have direct access to your listeners, get the advertising revenue. Mm -hmm. And now we're going through another phase whereby musicians not just have access to their customers, but they can track, as you said, who wants to listen to the song, who wants to replay it, who wants to take ownership of it, what is the fractional ownership of that, what rights are given out, who's paying for those rights and get direct access. So it seems as if technology goes through these phases whereby over time we're more and more cutting out the middleman. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's very much what I start, we started off with, that the blockchain is about disintermediation. Now, take out the intermediary and try to create more of a direct relationship between transacting parties. And that's precisely, I think, what you uh, uh, summed up just now, that this is the new wave. Uh, it's still in its infancy. You know, there's still some yes. birds that need to be fixed, but uh, it's slowly happening, I think. But I remember the early days of uh, Netscape. Remember Netscape? Yeah. I remember even the prospectus, because I read it recently for an episode I was doing, and mm -hmm. people were able to roughly predict the direction the internet would go in, but they never predicted the implications fully. And I think that's a similar thing with, with blockchain and crypto. We know it's going to be significant, but we don't know how significant it's going to be and what the profit pools are going to be and who is going to benefit fully from this yet. You know, let's take an example that's likely to coincide with blockchain's evolution, and that is driverless cars. Yes. Uh, what I call autonomous vehicles. So if you think of an autonomous vehicle, it still needs the old fashioned car manufacturing. Maybe not an internal combustion engine, but it does need a car with yeah. wheels and some kind of a drivetrain that takes the power from a battery or an engine to the wheels and some kind of steering device, et cetera. It'll need all that, but it also needs a huge amount of software, very new kind of software that yeah. has to be real time. Uh, it has to communicate with the cloud to constantly get uh, information about the car and its location and other cars on the road and, and so forth. Uh, it'll need cameras, you know, some, some kind of vision a radar and LIDAR, and it's probably going to have a tremendous amount of onboard entertainment and productivity and shopping and so forth. And so the car will become, I've read this, car will become a smartphone on wheels. Yes. And so the revenue, you mentioned the word profit pools. I think the profit pools from this new kind of car will be very different from the yes. traditional car manufacturing where GM makes the car, sells it through a distributor and gets, uh, you know, 80% of the car's uh, uh, price and then pays out all its bills. And if it sells enough volume because it has very high costs, makes a profit. That's the old car manufacturing. 
with the new model, you're going to have many people contributing to the car, which could be like an old Dell computer, you know, where the individual could get online and say, you know, this is the car I want. And they could decide if they wanted it to be two seats or four seats, whether the seats face each other, whether you would have, you know, a sofa in it, whether you'd have a big screen, you know, you name it, you could put it into a car because all it is is something that sits on wheels and is autonomously driven. So you're going to have, I think, the possibility that the new cars of the future will be co-created by many different people contributing to the IP, which does lead to the car. So you can think of each car being manufactured as a token that progresses yeah. through the blockchain. And as it progresses through the blockchain, different people are adding value. And the car itself may never be sold, by the way. It could be completely shared because yes. the car is always communicating with the cloud. So I could have an application on my phone that GM sends me that allows me to call a GM autonomous vehicle whenever I want. And then it bills me automatically like a cell phone company bill, you know, which charges me for a flat fee plus usage, uh, gigabytes per month or something. And that uh, fee would be captured in the blockchain and then distributed among all of the members who made that car. And that could be a very good example of how blockchain might uh, be used in a world where you have consortia developing new innovative products who need to be rewarded in some proportion to their contribution. And the idea of a token captures, I think, how the value is added as it goes along what you might call an assembly line. So that's you, just one example. <laughs> when you explain it that way, which is very well explained, you get a sense of the difficulties facing the CEOs of the automotive companies. They've got to make really difficult decisions in terms of where they allocate capital, mm -hmm. in terms of the business models they want to create and how they're going to compete. It's not an easy decision to make. Very hard. Yeah. Very hard. Very I mean, hard. you almost feel sorry for them, but at the same time, out of you know, challenges comes opportunities, right? Yeah. And what's happening is you've got brand new companies like Tesla that didn't exist 15 years ago that are, that are using machine learning uh, to and AI to constantly update the autonomous driving software. And they hope to be one of the first people to make what is called a level five automation, completely hands-off automation, right? And then you've got companies like GM who have invested heavily in trying to create their own internal uh, autonomous vehicle software. And then you've got companies uh, in between like Google, uh, Waymo, who are trying to yes. do simulation and a specialized uh, language, coding language to conceive, of, to conceive of every possible situation a car could be in and then write code for that purpose, test it out in a simulation model and then continually refine the model. So you've got all of these different approaches. And what remains to be seen is, you know, how many different uh, operating systems do we need? if you have an autonomous vehicle, is one or two sufficient? Or are you going to have 15 or 30 of them and the customer can choose which one he wants for his car? Uh, so it's it's going to be an interesting world. And by the way, the reason I bring up blockchain is that I think blockchain presents a way for organizations to collaborate across boundaries. So yeah. if GM wants to collaborate with Google, which wants to collaborate with uh, you know, Magic Eye, which wants to collaborate with uh, you know, a shopping company like, uh, like Amazon that says, you know, I'll try to create a specialized you know, shop front for shopping inside a car or university that wants to create degree courses for you to uh, learn while you're in an autonomous vehicle. So you could have all kinds of uh, value added coming into this new car of the future. And a blockchain might be a way for a company or several companies to join hands and say, let's create a private blockchain and start building the car of the future. And this blockchain allows us a way to, to govern ourselves, to figure out how uh, these very different companies, each with their own capabilities, can come together to create a, a very valuable product for the future. It's definitely going to be an exciting time. I noticed in your bio, you also do research around family businesses. Is that correct? That's right, I do, yeah. Which areas of family business? Oh, I'm interested to some extent in uh, family business internationalization because I'm a professor of strategy and international business. Yes. So I'm interested in, the idea is family businesses tend to put higher level positions in the hands of family members. Yeah. As a result, they lack the professionalization of a non-family business, which by that I mean a professionalization could go out and hire people who are experienced in running international business operations, 
who have learned how to do exporting and joint ventures and setting up foreign manufacturing operations, so forth. So a family business lacks those kinds of, uh, of uh, you know, potential new blood because they want to reserve the highest level jobs above a certain level for family members. So I was interested in that issue. You know, how do family members try to overcome the, the problems created by wanting to emphasize family control and family management of the company? And I was actually in India, in, uh, in Bangalore at the Indian Institute of Management, where I did some work on this topic. It ended up finally as a book that I wrote with some other colleagues, yes, Firms Within Families, which is really about, about that topic. Uh, but my interest in more recent uh, years has become much more on this area of blockchain and technology strategy. Thank you so much, Ravi. That was amazing. I think that I personally learned a lot and I think that it's going to help our listeners also understand the implications of blockchain and crypto. Well, I hope so. I've enjoyed this talk very much. And I think you've asked some very, very good questions. I really have enjoyed the the series of questions you've asked and you know I, I i think it flowed very well and you really brought out a lot of interesting uh, ideas that have been you know percolating in in as i've been thinking about this topic and writing about it but i think your questions really helped bring out some of these ideas uh, and so thank you for 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 a very uh, you know enjoyable conversation very enjoyable thank you Thank you. I also enjoyed it. You know, it's very rare when I meet someone who changes my thinking on a topic, and I think you've done that. <laughs> Take care, Ravi. We'll be in touch okay. soon. Certainly. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.